0: Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 8, and we will read part of that chapter, but just prior to hearing Nehemiah chapter 8, let me read two verses of scripture, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13. Hear now the word of the living God. But you go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And Luke chapter 2 verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Brothers and sisters, these two passages, the end of Daniel and the birth of Christ, are the bookends for us over the next four weeks. Let's walk from one to the other, and in doing so, hear the first part now of Nehemiah chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. For the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is the word of the living God and we say. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated and let's pray. Now, O Lord, we pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word that both in the preaching, the proclamation of it, and the hearing of it, you might pour out by your Spirit the sweet dew of your grace upon us, that we might be strengthened and edified in the faith, that Christ might be lifted high, and his words might be heard and savored in our ears. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Several weeks back, brothers and sisters, those of you that are regularly here, we finished our journey through the book of Daniel. And if you remember, in the book of Daniel, we took the view that these various cycles of prophecy from Daniel 7 to Daniel 12 are really repeated examples of how God was going to bring his people back from exile God who controls all things, including the rulers of the world. You remember Daniel chapter 11. All of the various kings that were listed prophetically before they even were born. But from Daniel's time all the way to the birth of Christ, God had a plan, and he revealed that plan to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11, you remember that after all of the kings that existed in the pagan world, from Daniel's day all the way to King Herod. That's right, boys and girls, King Herod, that we often hear about at Christmas time. That God was in control of all of them, and that the coming of Christ would be that great fulfillment that Daniel received word about. So, here during this time of Christmas, what many would call Advent, we're going to walk by God's grace from Daniel to the manger. From Daniel to the manger of Christ, significant events happened over the 500 years or so, from the end of Daniel's days to the birth of Christ. And it's several of those significant events that we want to see as we together walk to the manger of Bethlehem and see with our eyes and the scriptures the blessed Savior. So what is the movement then from Daniel to the manger of You can read of some of the accounts of how God's words to Daniel came true. That the people of God began to return. You can read in Ezra chapter 1 of the call for the exiles to return. Ezra chapter 1, this was prophesied to Daniel. Listen to these words. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. This is a pagan king. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings to the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah began to trace the movement of the people of God out of exile in Babylon, freed by the Persians, and set back to the land of Israel. Set back, yes. To their home. Set back, yes, as former refugees, but really, in God's economy, sent back to prepare the land for the coming of Christ. Ezra chapter 1 begins that discussion. Or there's the book of Esther that details God's preserving of the Hebrew people during trial. And who can forget in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, the prophecy that we read? That the people of God would indeed return from exile. This was part of Daniel's so-called 70 weeks. That they would return and that they would rebuild Jerusalem. God promised Daniel in answer to Daniel's prayer, they will return. Now returning from exile, physical Jerusalem is being built. And it's time for spiritual revival. You remember why they were sent into exile a broken covenant with God. The 70-year exile was a period in which God was chastising his people, but he wasn't finished with them. Now, in the seventh month, as Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, the month wherein the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Day of Atonement would occur the time was right for the people of God to experience spiritual revival. And it's this spiritual revival, just a few, just a few days and weeks and years after Daniel that we study in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you're a note taker this morning, we're going to see three aspects about this period between Daniel and the manger. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 details for us that Ezra, the scribe, was told to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. The Puritan Matthew Poole writes this about this verse. Ezra, quote, came 12 or 13 years before Nehemiah to Jerusalem and either tarried there or went back to Babylon, being forced to do so by the king's command or indispensable occasions, and then return again with Nehemiah. There is this period of return here, in verse 1 of Nehemiah 8, what do we read? All the people. All the people gathered together as one man. That means they were unified, boys and girls. There were many people, men and women, but they were gathered together as if they all agreed, as if they were all one We've already seen this, but the text tells us when this was, verse 2. It was the first day of the seventh month. This will become important to us in a few minutes. This day was the feast of the trumpets, a day of convocation, a day of assembling to worship the Lord. You can read of this in the Law in Leviticus 23, verse 24. And notice what happens next. The people are gathered They say to Ezra, the priest, read us the book of the law. The text tells us, Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. And verse 3 then says, then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. This would be six hours. Six hours. Hours of God's Word being read, verse after verse after verse. You know, it's not only in the Old Testament that we see the pattern of the reading of God's Word. What does Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13? As he's instructing him on the ministry, on the leadership of churches, he says that he ought to devote himself to what? The public reading of Scripture. In Old Testament and New Testament alike, it is God's Word, written down for the people of God, that is the chief means through which the Lord works. And that's really our first point this morning. The Lord works among His people chiefly by His Word. The Lord works among His people chiefly by His Word. So the people have returned. There's excitement Parts of the city are being rebuilt. The temple will ultimately be rebuilt. And they're gathered here. And they're listening to the word of God. And how are they listening? Look at the end of verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There would have been very few copies of the law at this point. Many of these individuals would have returned from exile not having been familiar as previous generations were with what was written there. And the people soaked it up. They were attentive to the scriptures. Can you imagine a large assembly of God's people, attentive, desirous to hear the word of God being read? See, there's a biblical pattern the regular gathering of God's people with the chief goal of hearing and singing and seeing in sacraments the word of God. God is returning his people to the holy land, the glorious land, as Daniel's book calls it, and preparing them for what is to come. And here we see that the Lord works chiefly through his word. Do you desire the Word of God, in this way? Of course, there's a context here. There's emotion here. Of course, we are people of varying emotions and passions. We shift all of the time. But is there a regular desire in your heart to be attentive to the reading and the preaching of the Word of God? If the answer to that question is no, pray that the living God will give you that desire again. Because the Lord works among his people chiefly by his word. But notice there was preparation. Look at verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Now I don't think that means that we should walk away thinking that we always have to have a pulpit or a platform in order for God's word to be proclaimed. But there was preparation prior to this day. There was the thought that we are going to read God's word and we need to construct something that serves the purpose of that being present. So there's a platform of wood made for that purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Mesiah. And at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbedana, Zechariah, and Meshelam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood. Don't you think Daniel would love to have had eyes on this moment? All the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. A platform was made for the purpose there was preparation. Side note of application here for us, brothers and sisters. We don't need to build a new pulpit every week. None of you need to come here on Saturday and prepare a platform for the preaching of God's word. But there is a pattern that we see throughout the scripture that it is good and right to be prepared in soul for the proclamation of the word of God. Every week, the the beseeching the Lord, Lord, would you build a platform in my soul this week for the preaching and reading of the word that's going to happen? That if you give me breath this coming Lord's Day, when it is read, when the people around me sin it, when the minister preaches it, when we see it unfolded in baptism of the Lord's Supper, would you build a platform in my soul that the Word of God would be revered and that my life would be changed because of it? Notice the response. All the people stood. Now, perhaps some commentators would say this is so that they could hear it. Others will make the case that this was in reverence for the Word of God, because we do see that elsewhere in the Scriptures. Numbers 11.32, Judges 3.20, the standing as God's Word is given. I take it to be that is the meaning. With preparations being made, the Word of God is being read, and the people are standing Perhaps, we are left to assume for hours on end. And notice their response. Amen. Amen. All the people are answering God's word with amen, while lifting up their hands, which is also a posture that we see in Scripture. We even see it in the New Testament, don't we? 1 Timothy 2, chapter 8 verse 8, I want men everywhere praying without dispute, lifting holy hands. And their faces, verse 6 says, are to the ground. Beloved, we aren't to assume that in every instance where God's word is read, where God's word is preached, where it's sung, that there's going to be this level of physical reaction. I don't think we're meant to assume from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, that we always have to do all of these things. Always have to lift our hands. Always have to say amen. Always have to bow down with our faces to the ground. But there is a posture here, outwardly, That we ought to pray for in our souls inwardly, week in and week out. That we might receive the word. That we might be prepared to receive it. That we might see it as God's word to us. And that we might receive it with word, with hand, and with face to the ground, at least in our souls. Lord, this is your word. We say yes to it. We receive it. And we honor you for speaking it to us. See, the Lord works among his people. Yes, in various ways, but chiefly by his word. But notice what happens next. Verse seven tells us that an entire crew, along with the Levites, quote, helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense And help them to understand the reading. What does that mean? Gave the sense. Well the, the word of God is being read. But people are moving in and out of groups in the crowd. To exposit the word. Now some scholars will argue that it's likely that part of what is mentioned here. Is that there's a translation of the Hebrew text into the Aramaic. The official language of the people coming out of the exile in Babylon. That they're having to be reacquainted with their former language. And so there's translation and explanation. This is what this means. This is what this means. It's not just the reading of the word, but the giving of the sense of the word that is happening. See. Part of what God had told Daniel, as he told him, go into your rest. I've given you all. One of the things that happens is that God's people do indeed return. Daniel had been promised this. People do indeed begin to rebuild. God had promised Daniel this. word is read and proclaimed again among the people. The Lord works among his people chiefly by his word. Before we leave this point, by God's grace here in this place, there is a ready encouragement from the body for the preaching of the word. Countless numbers of you in this place encourage the various men who are preachers here. You take the time to say, it is the word preached. And you get this. Let us not lose this. That the God who brought the people of Daniel's day back to the land, to prepare the land for the coming of Christ, used his word, and still does to this day. Because we, after all, are waiting for Christ to come, just like they are. The Lord works among His people chiefly by His word, but secondly, brothers and sisters, the Lord reminds His people who they are before Him. The Lord reminds His people who they are before them, before Him. Notice what happens next in verse nine. The word is read. <clears throat> the people are prepared for this. There's translation, there's explanation, there's teaching that is occurring. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priests and scribes, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. It was a Sabbath convocation. It was a feast day. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept, When they heard the words of the law. Now there are two things that are happening here in our text. The people are hearing God's word read. And what's happening? They're hearing the words of the law. Likely the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And they are convicted. Convicted. Of their failures before the living God. They are convicted, perhaps some of them, of why they were sent into exile to begin with. Verse 9 again, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Friend, the scriptures rightly understood. I mean, there are many who hear the scriptures read. There are many who see Bible passages. They go to a baseball game or a football game, and they see someone holding a sign, John 3.16, or they see it on a t-shirt, and they read it, and they just pass right by it. But the Scriptures rightly understood lead to a sense of our having broken God's law and our need for restoration. You see, the Lord is reminding His people of who they are before Him. And they're weeping. Now, before we get to that first part, when the leaders say, don't weep, wouldn't we assume that that's the natural reaction? If you were witnessing to a hardened sinner, or one of your relatives who had formally said, I don't want anything to do with your Christ, comes to you, and you're having a discussion of what the Bible says is right and wrong, and they begin to weep, at the realization of their failures, wouldn't you think, this is a win? This is a win! But perhaps seemingly strange to us is the call of Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. This is not a statement that mourning over sin should never happen. After all... What do the Beatitudes remind us? Blessed are those who mourn. I take that to at least include mourn over sin. This is not a statement that mourning for sin is always wrong, but that this particular day was a day of celebration. A question. Is it possible that in the face of overwhelming guilt before the law of God, the people of God can actually have joy? The Lord is reminding his people through his word who they are before him, and their response is mourning. But their leaders say, do not mourn or weep, for this day is holy to the Lord your God. So this takes us then to our third and final discovery this morning. And that is that the Lord readies the hearts of his people for Christ. I want us to take the long view and then the very specific Nehemiah eight view. The long view is this, brothers and sisters. Daniel is told all of these things are going to happen right up to King Herod killing people because Jesus was born. And God has a plan to ready his people, many of them spiritually in their souls for the coming of Christ. But specifically, this number of people, this generation of people, this group of people in Nehemiah 8 are readied in their hearts for Christ in a particular way. They're mourning. They're grieving as they hear God's law read. And they're told, do not mourn or weep. Verse 10 then continues. Then he said to them, go your way, Eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, many of us have heard that. Perhaps you sent a greeting card or received one when you were younger. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The particular Baptist John Gill in the 1700s on this phrase wrote these words, and the joy which has the Lord for its object and comes from him is the cause of renewing spiritual strength so as to run and not be weary, walk and not faint in the ways of the Lord or the ways of God. You see, The message here is that strength is found in taking joy in the Lord. Jesus prayed a very specific prayer for you, believer, in John 17. And in verse 13, one of the things that he prays for is for your joy. Your joy. The people of God were not to stay in mourning over sin because ceremonially this was a specific day. It was holy to the Lord. It was a feast day. In fact, they were told, "Boys and girls, it might seem strange. Eat the fat." In other words, the food of this day is better food. It's the rich food. It's the holiday feast food. Eat it. Drink the sweet. This is not a bread and water day. Send the portions for those who nothing is prepared for this day is holy to the Lord. But the larger principle behind all of this ceremonially was that they were not to stay in mourning over sin because the Lord who convicts of sin is also the Lord who saves from sin. Notice the previous words prior to exile of Jeremiah three fourteen. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master, I will take you. Meditate on such a phrase, believer. Return, O faithless child, declares the Lord. For I am your master, I will take you. Doesn't this have the effect in soul and in mind of turning mourning into joy? Psalm 28, verse 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts or expresses joy and with my song, I give thanks to Him. Not only does the Lord work among His people chiefly by His Word, the Lord reminds His people who they are before Him, but thirdly, He also readies the hearts of His people for Christ. Here they are, on this feast day. They hear the law of God. They soak it up. They're receiving it. They are affected Perhaps many of them in their souls by the Spirit of God and their mourning. And after all the people of God have been through, after a disciplinary exile, after all kinds of chastisement, they are grieving and they're being told, Today's a feast. It's a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, don't mourn have joy. Now I want you to consider what day this is. Again, they've returned from exile. They realize that they've broken God's law. They're affected by this. Notice the call. At the beginning of the month, that was designed in the Jewish calendar for preparation and for the meeting of God. Here's what I mean. The seventh month was a very particular month. It was kind of like a Sabbath month for the people of God, and they're starting up these feasts again. Davy Ellison, a scholar, writes these words which are helpful for us when we consider what it means for this to be the seventh month. He says, quote, Just as the seventh day of the week is holy, so too the seventh month is marked as special. A Sabbath month. This assertion is based on more than mere numbers. The seventh month carried three feasts or festivals. Trumpets, this day. Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacle. The feast of trumpets is therefore an opportunity for the people to prepare themselves for this holiest of months in the Jewish calendar. The trumpets call the people to prepare for the time later in the month when the high priest will enter the Holy of Holies. The feast prepares the Israelites to meet their God. And think about their response <laughs> It's likely a proper response. We're about to meet our God. If everything that has been said in the law of God is true, and all of these days unfolding the way that they are, are true, then we are right at the beginning of a celebration of meeting our God. And look who we have been. And what are they told? You're about to meet God. The cycle of feasting and dealing ceremonially with sin, ultimately, which would occur once that temple was finally rebuilt, all of it is met with, eat the fat. Could it be that at our lowest, in hearing God's law as his people, God points us to joy? Why would a sinner, upon recognizing that he or she has desperately broken God's commandments, why would they ever say, let's have a feast, let's be joyful, let's celebrate, let's eat the fat? The simple answer is, God gives them warrant. To do so, God gives them warrant to do so. Because this day of preparation, this day of the Sabbath month, this day of returning to the Lord and realizing who you are before Him through His Word is going to begin again the cycle of ceremonial expressions where year in and year out a priest would enter once per year on behalf of God's people to make a sacrifice for sin. And for centuries, with some challenging interruptions, the unblemished lamb would be sacrificed. And God would be constantly reminding his people, blood must be shed for your guilt. Blood must be shed for your guilt. And year in and year out, generation in and generation out, this would be the pattern again until what? John would come on the scene and he would point to our Savior and say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is a holy day. And the mourning people are told, the grieving people are told, eat the Drink the sweet. Do not sorrow. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy that has God as its object And the joy that he gives you as you are his in Christ, that will be your strength, even in the face of recognizing who you are. I like to think that had Daniel been able to see this, there would have been great joy in heart and mind. Because God, you said, through a variety of visions, that you were going to return the people to the land. And you've done it. You said that there would be rebuilding. Just read Daniel 9, 24-27. And there was. You said, as Lord willing, we'll see next week, the temple would be rebuilt. And it is being rebuilt. You said that there would be a spiritual revival of sorts. And the seeds of that revival are beginning. It's almost as if the living God can be trusted when he speaks. And the chief word that he speaks to sinners is, come to me and I will forgive your sins. I will receive you. I will take you. Return to me, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. Put a period there. What do you think is coming next? You've been faithless, and your master has gotten a hold of you now. What do you think comes next? I can tell you what would come next if I was the one speaking. That's not what God says. Return to me, O faithless child, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will. What will you do to me, God? What will you do? I will take you. I will take you. How? How will you take me back? Well, Israelite... I'm returning you to the land so that that promise that I gave your father Abraham would come true, that from your flesh would come the seed who will bless the nations. And when he comes, he will die for your sins, every last one of them. He will take them on himself, wrap himself in your sins, and pay the full price that my righteous law demands of you, but he will do it. And his perfect life will be credited to you by faith, and you will be wrapped in robes of righteousness, not your own. And for all of eternity, what you will hear is well done, good and faithful servant, coming through him. And I will forever receive you as queen, and accepted and holy because you're united to Him. Maybe you're here today and the furthest thing in your mind is what happened to a bunch of Hebrews 2,500 years ago returning to Jerusalem. Don't miss that their return is one of the means that the Lord uses to offer you life. Because their great, great grandson, Christ, bled and died for sinners. And until you no longer have a heartbeat or breath in your lungs, that living Christ says to you, I will take you. You journeyed far, but I will take you back. Or maybe you never were his. And so he says to you, come to me, and I will never, never cast you out. The glorious picture of moving from Daniel to the manger is that God actually does it. And he gets us. Let's pray. Almighty God, aid us. As we take these steps in your word from the end of Daniel's day to the birth of Christ, help us to see the glorious... Realities of your mercy to your people, your kindness and your love, and how you use your word to move us and change us. Oh Lord, give us a desire, a renewed desire to hear you. And when we see who we are in the face of your law, to hear the promised words of joy from our Savior. He reminds us by His Spirit of who we are in Him. These things we pray in Jesus' name.